0: Good morning. I'm going to fill in for grow groups this morning. Um, For those who don't know me, I'm Garrett Morris. I like to kind of get out so that you know who's talking to you this morning. I'm Garrett Morris. I've served as a deacon here at Stillwater Bible Church. I'm in my third term as that, and I'm one of the worship leaders. You might see me on stage uh, Sunday singing and playing guitar. But a little bit about me. I've been married to my wife, wonderful wife Paige, for nine years. Uh, Actually, this month will be 10 years since I proposed, so a, a good decade ago. It seems like a long time. I definitely don't feel old enough for that to be the case. Um, and it also speaks to Paige's patience and perseverance that we've made it that long. She puts up with me. So we've got three beautiful children, Greenlee, Preston, and Havilland. Um I'm blessed beyond comprehension, and and I praise God daily for His grace and faithfulness to me. So this morning, I'm going to be teaching from a few uh, different passages in the New Testament, mainly a little bit of Matthew, but Acts, the first part of Acts there. I thought it's a great way to kick off the new year to look at the early church, uh, to see how they functioned and the results produced, and then we're going to apply these principles in the way that hopefully we approach our Christian life. So uh, I'll start with prayer. And then we'll get into it. You should have plenty of time, I think, to break out into grow groups and hopefully have some good application discussion with the stuff that we go over. Uh, so let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this morning. I thank you for uh, the opportunity to look at your word. I pray this morning that as, as we look um, at these passages, that we would be able to make application in our lives and ultimately uh, so that we can know, apply, and teach others uh, as a... As, uh, I teach as I look at your word. I just pray that it's your words and your teaching that comes from my mouth and that we would all hear it and be able to apply that. I thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we're going to start this morning looking... At briefly at the Great Commission. We call it the Great Commission. It's Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. You're going to have to bear with me. I don't have slides. I do have a handout, so if you don't have a handout, let me know, and I can make sure that you get one to kind of follow line a little bit of an outline, but you're going to have to bear with me because I'm not, I'm not very... Good with a clicker anyway. So, uh, so we're going to start Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen through 20, right? Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, right? So we look at this and there's one command. I've got extra ones up here, Brian, if you don't have any. Okay, so we see here the command given, it's make disciples, Right? We, we always uh, often teach our purpose, plan, and process of the church. Right, That's to make disciples. This is where that comes from. Uh, how do we do that? We say evangelism and training. Right? We've got to tell people the gospel, and then once they put their faith in Jesus Christ for eternal life, we've got to train them to become disciples. So this morning, the teaching that I'm going to do assumes we've all put our faith in Jesus for eternal life, that we're all Christians, that we all have eternal life, If uh, someone hasn't, know that you can do that right now where you sit. You put your faith in Jesus for eternal life, and you've got that. You can do it right now. God promises you eternal life the moment you believe, and that cannot be taken away from you. So everything that I talk about from here on assumes that we've got that and that we are Christians and that we believe. So with the Great Commission, I want to shift The early church, we're going to be looking at Acts 2. If you want to flip there, Acts 2 and 3, we're going to look at the Apostle Peter's first two recorded sermons where he delivers the gospel to a couple of groups of people. Right? So, as you turn there, I'm going to give a little bit of context. Jesus, he's been crucified, buried, he's risen, he's given the Great Commission as we've seen, right? And then he has ascended into heaven. After that, the apostles return to Jerusalem. They're waiting in the upper room. Right? They while they're there, they replace Judas with Matthias. Right? Judas had hung himself, and so now they've got to replace him. And they do that with Matthias. So in the beginning of Acts 2, the day of Pentecost arrives, what they're waiting on. They're waiting on the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples and they begin speaking in tongues. Right? It explicitly says here that those there heard them in their own tongues right? So the the appearance there is that each person was understanding the disciples in their own language, right? It wasn't just this something that they had to have an interpreter. They actually heard it and were able to understand it in their own language, and this kind of brought this amazement, this just kind of awesomeness and and got people's attention. Of course, there were other people accusing the disciples of being drunk in Acts 2.13, right? They say, um, but others were mocking and saying they're full of sweet wine, and this is where Peter steps in. In 2.14, he begins this sermon, uh, which is really the first time we see this recorded, this gospel being given after Jesus' death and resurrection. It says, but Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. So he says, it's only 9 a.m., right, these people aren't drunk, can't be drunk, it's too early in the morning, it's nine o'clock, that's not what's going on, he says, but this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel, and it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth in my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come, and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So Peter says these men aren't drunk, but rather what has happened is done to fulfill prophecy. So let's read on. As men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. Just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So here Peter tells of Christ's death, right? He explains to him. And then let's read on. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And Peter explains, brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay, this Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. So here, Peter just told that Christ was raised. So Peter tells of Christ's death and resurrection, which is what? It's the gospel, right? We see Peter give the gospel here. Therefore, here's a summary statement, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see in here, for it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. So here Peter basically says, you've, you've crucified the Messiah, right? After all this, I've told you, Christ's death, resurrection, you've crucified the Messiah. And it says the Israelites were pierced to the heart and asked, what shall we do? Peter then tells them to repent, to change their mind, and they will be saved. So let's see it. This is very powerful. So he just tells these Jewish people, you've crucified the Messiah. They've said, what shall we do? And verse 37 is where I'm going to start. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter, and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? So pierced to the heart, they were cut. There's deep sorrow there. The Jews have heard the gospel. Peter then tells them they killed the Messiah, and, the, and they are pierced to the heart. They say, what shall we do? Now that they know this, what do they do with this knowledge, right? That's the question. Verse 38 says, Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent and be baptized. This might trip some people up. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this, mainly because I I don't explain it as well as some others, but it does need to be addressed. So repent literally means change of mind. We know that, right? Peter's saying, change your mind about who Jesus is. You just killed him. Change your mind. He is the Messiah. You said he wasn't, but he is. Change your mind. We know faith in Christ brings salvation. So, how does all this fit? In English, it looks like you have to repent and be baptized for salvation and forgiveness of sins. But this is, and JB and others do a much better job explaining this, in the Greek, it reads more like, repent, there's a plural, right? All of you repent for the forgiveness of all of your sins, and all of you shall receive the power of the Holy Spirit. And it says, and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So the repentance and baptism, don't go there, don't go together there, right? There's this idea of changing your mind, getting the forgiveness of sin, and then after, each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So let's look on, verse 39. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord God will come to himself. So the promise is for all people. What promise? Eternal life, right? Forgiveness of sins, that's the promise. Verse 40, and with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So he kept, kept telling them this message, right? You crucified Christ the Messiah. But 41, this is such an awesome uh, verse here. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day they were at, there were added about 3,000 souls. That's pretty powerful, right? That day they added 3,000 souls. So we see in the upper room, right, there were 120 of them there. So in this first sermon where we see the gospel given, now the church has grown, exploded from 120 people to 3,000. Peter gives the gospel. Jews are pierced to the heart. They ask what they should do. Peter tells them how to respond, and 3,000 now believe. To put it in perspective, and and I'm kind of a math guy, I'm a banker in my off time, and so to put it in perspective, the church grew by 2,500% that day, 2,500%. That would be like, well, pre-COVID, we had, I would say, fairly regularly about 400 people coming to service here. That would be like in one day taking the 400 people here and growing into 10,000 like that because the, the gospel was given. There's power in the gospel, we see it here. We've got the attention of all of the Jews there because of Pentecost and what has just happened. Peter uses this to give the gospel and the church explodes to 3,000 people, 2,500% growth. So we see in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, we're called to share the gospel. We're called to evangelize and train. In Acts 2, we see what can happen when we're faithful to share that, right? Peter's given an audience, he gives the gospel and they explode. So the question is, how serious do we take this command, right? That's the application. We see the command. We're all called to make disciples. We're all called to evangelize and train and give the gospel. How serious do we take it? Are we willing and motivated to do it? And if not, why, right? These are questions we need to be asking ourselves and and, and questions that I think, at least for me, when I read this, I'm very convicted by it. So to change gears a little bit, I want to look at how the church functioned kind of within itself. After this, you see the gospel is given, 3,000 people are added, and then we see in verse 42, the early church and how how they um, functioned. In verse 42, it says, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostle teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer, right? Teaching, the word of God, fellowship, this idea of unity, sharing community, breaking of bread, eating together, and taking the Lord's Supper, and prayer, Right? We've got to pray. We've got to be willing to pray. And we see here they were devoted to all of this. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all who had believed were together and had all things in common. Right? There was unity, and they had all things in common. We see in 45, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. So the early church made sure that, first and foremost, they took care of the needs of the church, the fellow believers there. They were taking care of each other. Outreach ministry is very important. It's something we need to do. We just talked about evangelism, right? But we need to not forget that we're called to take care of one another as a church body. As fellow believers, we've got to take care of one another. Verse 46, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Verse 47, praising God and having favor with the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day, those who were being saved. So favor, they had to have grace and kindness. So when the church was doing what they were supposed to do, people, very important to understand, unbelievers, it says all people, right? Had favor with them. So the church was taking care of each other, they were functioning in a certain way, and they had favor with all people. So the question is, is that happening now? Do we see the church having favor with all people? So what might contribute to that? How can we look at that and say, well, why not? As a believer and as a church, why is that? One, either our message isn't unified, or it's growing divisive, right? It's hateful, or it's not loving. And two, I think we don't necessarily always do a good job of taking care of each other. And so we've got to, I think, the application here is let's do that. Let's take care. We can see how the early church was functioning, see that the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Day by day adding to their number those who were being saved. So I want to look at one more passage in Acts, and then we can break into grow groups and talk. But flip over to Acts 3.11. We see another, another opportunity, Peter here, where he, he gives the gospel again. He also has a sermon here. So context for this passage, Peter and John, they just hailed, uh, healed a lame beggar. There was a man that had been carried to the gate of the temple, it says, every day. It seemed that many, if not everyone, knew who this guy was. So Peter and John in verse four, verses 4 through 7 tell this guy they don't possess silver or gold. He looks at them instead of giving them silver or gold, but what they do have they can give him, and that's healing right they command him in the name of Jesus to walk and he does it says in verse 9 that all people saw this man walking and praising God so there's great application here because Peter takes this opportunity where he performed this great miracle he's got all eyes on him right all these people notice this guy who's now walking everyone's taking notice and what does he do he gives the gospel so he's got the attention of everyone this miracle has just happened and he takes the time to give the gospel. In three twelve, Peter begins this sermon. Right? The guy, and let's go back to eleven. It says, while he was clinging, this is the beggar. Cling to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. But when Peter, but when Peter saw this, verse 12. He replied to the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this, or why do you gaze at us, as if by our own power or piety we made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned to the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. Right there, it gives it, right? You put him to death. God raised him. We see the gospel. He takes the time to divert away and says, it's not us, it's the power of God and Jesus that has caused this guy to walk. It's not me. And he gives the gospel. Right? And then verse 17, Skip down says, and now I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers also, but the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he is thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return. Change your mind and return so that your sins may be wiped away. Right? So we see Peter takes this time. He gives the gospel. He's got the attention of people. In chapter 4, we see he does this, and the, the, as they were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple guards, and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus' resurrection of, of the, from the dead, and they laid hands on them and put them in jail, until the next day, for it was already evening. Right? We see that sharing the gospel can have temporary consequences. There's earthly consequences because they're thrown in jail. But the important thing to remember is what we see in verse 4 here. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. So Peter takes this opportunity, shares the gospel, this great thing, this platform he's been given, and now the church has grown to five. So we see from Pentecost, 120 in the upper room, to Peter's first sermon, 3,000 believers, to now his second, 5,000. Look how powerful the gospel is when we're faithful to give it. These first few chapters of Acts are always very convicting to me. I read it, I see this, and see how, how they all knew what the consequence was doing this. They just watched their Savior be crucified, right? And then they witnessed him being risen, and they boldly give the gospel, and look what happens. 5,000 people now as of chapter 4 of Acts are with them. We see the first time the gospel's preached, we see how the church functioned and what it produced, and we see the miracle of the lame beggar being healed, and then Peter using this to again preach a good news to those around, which led to another mass conversion. So let's look at some application, and then we'll break out into our groups. So number one, let's unashamedly proclaim the gospel to our community, our country, and the world, right? Our community, right? Here locally, to our country and the world. Spread it out. Number two, let's be a unified church. We need to be unified in message. Salvation is by grace through faith and unified in purpose. We need to make disciples. Evangelism, share the gospel, and training, right? And then three, let's use our various platforms and opportunities to point others to the gospel. Let's take those opportunities we're given when we've got an audience or as we're going and let's share the gospel. That's what we're called to do right? Jesus gives that one command in the Great Commission, make disciples. So we take our time to come to church on Sundays and Wednesdays and learn, but what's what we do with that, right? It's not just filling it in. It's, are we going out and doing that? Are we fulfilling the Great Commission? Are we sharing the gospel? Are we training others? That's where the work's done,